So like I said, I've been really looking forward to this passage. Like every pastor is like, oh my gosh, this is like the vision of the church. This is going to be, I'm going to try to preach an entire sermon series in one sermon around the vision. And I want you to know that that is absolutely, yeah, no, it's not going to happen today. As I said, hospitality is far more than sharing food and drink. It is at least that. But when we talk about the hospitality of Jesus, what we're talking about is a, a subversive hospitality. And I'm just going to jump right in because there are three elements of subversive hospitality we see directly in this passage. And it is, it, again, the, the, the drama of this can kind of cloud how the principles that are driving it and that are implicit throughout and the first piece is this. Subversive hospitality takes meaningful risk. Subversive hospitality takes meaningful risk. And I'm using this language of meaningful risk very intentionally because there's a word that that is a, a, a great definition of that we often confuse with things like transparency. And that is the word vulnerability. And I'm not using that word because I want us to get out of how we normally think about what vulnerability is into something different. Andy Crouch who wrote the, the fantastic book, Strong and Weak, he defines vulnerability as meaningful risk, and he describes it this way. He says, to be vulnerable is to be exposed to the possibility of loss, and not just, just loss of things or possessions, but our very sense of self. To be vulnerable is to open oneself up to the possibility, though not the certainty, that the result of our action in the world will be a wound, something lost, potentially never to be gained again. The last time we saw a queen in a throne room being discussed together, the queen was not actually in the throne room, right? It was actually Queen Vashti, who if you, if you were here when we started the series, you know that King Xerxes, slash who is also King Ahasuerus in the, in the, the narrative, asked her to come wearing her, her royal crown to represent and to be, to represent the glory of the Persian Empire, the other half that he is, is, is representative of as king. And that representative of the Persian Empire refused to do so when summoned, and she was deposed. Now, someone intending to walk into the throne room wearing royal robes, but to represent the Jews, who Haman has said is a threat to the empire, approaches uninvited. That, that context and that reversal, that change, is, is incredibly dramatic in the text. Right? It, it, it begs the question, it, it invites the audience to ask, oh my gosh, is, is she going to be deposed? Or is she going to be executed as she warned Mordecai just three days before when she said that anyone entering into the throne room without the king's invitation, if he doesn't lower his scepter to be touched, then there is a, it, we actually, there's archaeological like representations of this, uh, uh, like bas reliefs and stone where the, the, the Persian emperor is sitting on a throne and there's, there's a, a warrior behind him with an axe meaning like implying the practice that if someone came in and he didn't put the scepter down, they would be executed on the spot. That's the risk that Esther was going into. And she warned Mordecai when she, when she foreshad foreshadowed Boromir by thousands of years by saying, one does not simply walk into the throne room. I know you guys are loving my Tolkien illustrations this series. Um, but it's actually even crazier than this. Like, this is, this, is, this is practically reckless risk because 
Esther, in verse 4, it says, when, he, when the king asks her what, he want, what she wants, she says, I, would, I want you to come to a feast that I have, I want you and Haman to come to a feast that I have prepared for him. Okay? Now, you probably saw, I don't remember if I put it in the parentheses there, but like some of your translations will say the king, and that's because they are, you know, for the king. That's because they're assuming something that th- literally it's just the third person singular there. They think it's pointing to the king, but there's, it's, it's intentionally ambiguous, right? The king is thinking to himself, is she saying like the royal we, like the third person, me or Haman that this feast is for? It's intentionally ambiguous. And then worse, after that first feast, and that's why, by the way, that's why he, he responds by saying like, go get Haman, now we're going to do this. Because I want to know what it is that you want. He's kind of anxious. And then in verse 7, when they have that first feast, and she, he says, okay, okay, we've had your feast, now what do you want? I got some anxiety, curiosity's killing the king. He says, she says that I would like you to come to another feast that I have, you know, you and Haman, the king and Haman, to come to another feast that I have prepared for them. Third person, plural. What is going on here? And why, why am I saying this is dangerous? Well, Rabbi David Foreman said that the combination of an intimacy, this intimate setting, this is a private dinner for the king, that the queen, his wife, and, and we have a third wheel named Haman. Okay? That and the ambiguous purpose and her, her avoiding the question by having a second feast the next day coyly suggests and implies to the king that Esther and Haman are having an affair. That's what they... That's what Esther is implying to the king. Not only is Esther queen, because in the king's wrath, he deposed Vashti, but now she is intentionally, and yes, even shrewdly, wisely, stoking that same wrath in order to shape the battlefield that is to come and to direct that wrath toward Haman. Um... It's not an understatement to say that Esther is going nuclear here, okay? So much so that in, in between these two feasts, it says that the king couldn't sleep. If there's anyone who has sleep aids and an, and an opportunity to, who's, who is comfortable in their privilege and power, who, is, who could be more rocked by anxiety of this implication, it is the king of the Persian Empire at this time, Right? We're going to talk about more of that next week, next week because that, that in itself God uses in a, an insane way. My point I'm trying to say here is when we talk about vulnerability, we have a really low standard for vulnerability here. What we normally s- imply or mean when we talk about vulnerability is, is transparency, right? We confuse the kind of meaningful risk that Andy Crouch talks about, which says, hey, make yourself at home, and yes, in the bedroom too. Like, come into, like, open the medicine cabinet. That's fine. That's meaningful risk, right? To a manageable risk that says, look, don't touch. Esther is all in here. And Andy Crouch tells us that this is a, he doesn't connect it, I'm connecting it, but this is why this is such a big deal for us, because he says that the real temptation for most of us is not complete apathy, but activities that only simulate meaningful action and meaningful risk. Whether 
it simulates it by lessening the meaning by silly risk or by lowering the riskiness of it so it's meaningful, you're still diluting something. And this is important because hospitality that doesn't ask much of us won't transform much in us. Hospitality that doesn't ask much of us won't transform much in us. Okay, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Let's look at the second element of subversive hospitality, which is that it has an agenda of generosity. And you may be thinking to yourself, like, an agenda of generosity? Well, genuine generosity is always without agenda because that is literally, if you, if you Google agenda and generosity as I did, you will find that literally everyone in the world apparently believes that generosity cannot have an agenda. Everybody's wrong. The king, the only other banquet that is thrown for the king, because there are six feasts and banquets in the book of Esther. We've talked about this, right? The only other one that's for him is one he had to throw himself in order to be celebrated. Esther invites him into this lavish feast, and this is so outside of his experience and expectation, so outside of his norm. He's not used to it. Nobody invites the king to a feast for him. They always want something from him. And so he asks something, that, a question that we can all sympathize with. What do you want? Right? That's his, answer. That's his response. That's, like, that's his confusion. It's confusing, right? It was, I think it was only like three or four months after we, we had moved to Colorado. This is a decade ago now. Um, when uh, uh, some neighbors of ours that w- were moving, and we, we were really sad that they were moving because we, we became fast friends with the, this neighbor, and we were sad. And they were packing up their house. They wanted to have a going away party, but everything was in boxes, so they couldn't throw a going away party. So we said, hey, would you... Let, let us host your going away party. We're two houses down. Just, just invite all of your friends to our house instead. And it was great. Well, I didn't know this, but the, the wife, of our neighbor who was leaving, um, had been telling one of her friends named Mariah that um, I made an amazing Manhattan. And it was because it, I, I love it. Everybody likes it. You know, Manhattans can be a little sweet, but like a, a perfect Manhattan is far superior because it's splitting the sweet vermouth with sweet and dry vermouth. You're welcome. Um, and you don't want to bruise it, so you, you never shake a whiskey cocktail. Like, you don't shake it, okay? Just stir. It's, it's not a James Bond thing. It's a common sense thing. I'm helping you here. This is not part of the sermon at all. Um, anyway, she had been bragging to her friend, Mariah, about this Manhattan. And so when she came, um, our neighbor was like, hey, could you make one? She, she loves Manhattans. I'm like, absolutely. So we go down in our basement. We had a wet bar in that house, too. It was a different house. We lived in uh, Broomfield at the time, or Westminster. And um, and so this whole time I'm making the cocktail and explaining what I just did with you about the whiskey and the vermouth, and she she's just like giving me the like the cr- craziest stink eye, like total skepticism uh, uh, in her nonverbals. I'm just like, okay, nice to meet you too. I just told you my name. Like, here's your Manhattan. I hope it's good. And and this is what she does. She she takes a sip. She like narrows her eyes a little bit, and she takes one more sip. I'm going to clean up the language here. Uh, and she says, okay, what the F? And I was like, oh, oh God, what's wrong? Like, what did I do? Maybe I, I, did I forget the bitters? Like, what? She says, this is amazing. What's your story and why are you a pastor? And I 
think I said something like, well, how long do you have? <laughs> we have a wet bar in our basement, and if you, have, if you know anything about me, you know I love mixology, and this is very in character for me. Um, and I absolutely have an agenda with that generosity. I did not expect to have that conversation with Mariah the first time I meet her. I mean, it was a really good Manhattan, but I still did not expect the conversation to go like there that quickly, but I had hoped it would. I had hoped it would. And that is not in any way, shape, or form taking away from, an, uh, from, from the generosity of it. I didn't expect it at all. True, genero true, true generosity is never agendaless. Jesus' agenda of generosity was to be born into human history and to die as the God-man to satisfy God's justice and extend his love and mercy to a people who are lost and to invite anyone and everyone into that who wants to be, okay? He wants to know you. He has an agenda in his sacrificial love and generosity, right? Unconditional love and grace that is given without a purpose or a desire for another's ultimate good, and that includes especially but not only knowing Jesus, is not love but actually hate. The, the, the magician duo, uh, Penn and Teller, um, Penn Gillette is a um, kind of a public atheist who, who, who he very much talks about his atheism, and um, it's a whole thing. And there's this amazing YouTube video that's been popular for a while now of him describing this time when after a show, you know, recovering from it and then leaving toward his car, there's always like a group of, you know, audience members who want to get an autograph. And so you sign the autograph. And there's one guy who he said was there. And he, this, this video is him reflecting on this, this conversation uh, who got an autograph but also said like, hey, I, I want to give you this too. And it was a... Uh, you know, one of those little Gideon Bibles. And, you know, uh, Penn says, like, this happens sometimes. And sometimes they want to have this conversation with you. But he said, this guy was like, you know, hey, I just want to give this to you. I don't know if you'll read it, and it's okay. And if you ever want to talk, my card's in there. But thanks for the show. It was awesome. And he said that he, he, in his reflection on this, he said that a lot of times his default reaction towards like people proselytizing is frustration and like who are you and and that's like the primary dominant response but he said in in reflecting on it he said that the guy's kindness made him think a little bit harder about his reaction and he said you know if you think about it how much do you have to hate someone to believe that they, they don't know the savior that you know they're going to hell and how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about that savior and he was like, actually, I really appreciate it. I felt loved. That's, by the way, I want you to know, like, if you're not a Christian, like, yes, I slash we have an agenda for generosity. But what I hope is different about your experience about this is that, like, we're honest about it, one. Two, all of us have agendas. You, you can't live without an agenda. The, the whole idea of that is just bonkers to me. I don't understand it, honestly. But to be a Christian is to allow God's uh, agenda of generosity to subvert our own and to the degree that we resist rather than accept that is the degree that others will experience our hospitality as, gener ge as generosity or obligation persuasive or coercive here's what I mean like Mariah was confused in part and she 
experienced continued confusion because I was happy to tell her my story and why I was a pastor, but I did not expect or try to obligate her to anything in the midst of it. It was freely given, right? It's the difference between a posture to, uh, of evangelism that sees, you know, someone else as a potential, you know, an, an, another win in the win, another tally in the win column. That's an agenda of obligation versus someone who hopes that the person that they are being hospitable to becomes a, another brother or sister in Christ. And that's, that's God's agenda of generosity, not our agenda of obligation, right? Esther's generosity had an agenda. It was to persuade the king to undo his own irreversible royal decree that was also, and this is why it's, 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 it's actually for his good too. It was the, the original decree that Haman manipulated him into was not for his good. It was for Haman's pride, right? And so, and he was unknowingly threatening his own legitimacy of rule. And Esther was trying to work within the constraints that she was given in order to undo an evil and wicked thing, not just for the people of God, but also for the king, right? Think about it this way. If Vashti's disobedience made the king look so incompetent that they needed a royal decree to do damage control, how much more incompetent would he look if he issues a royal decree that catalyzes the accidental murder of his own queen? Like, talk about hold my beer. Haman's was an agenda of obligation. He tried to obligate the king to his own ends, and Esther's was an agenda of generosity to persuade the king out of an, of, of an abundance mentality and not a scarcity mentality that their, their ends were shared. Right? Even, I can't, uh, there's so much in this passage that reinforces this. He even asks, like, who is this man? Who is he? Who dare he? Who dare do this? You did. <laughs> you were the one that issued the decree. <laughs> You were the fool. And even in the way, then there's no way that Esther's reply would, he would not, he, there's no way in her reply that, she that he wouldn't connect the dots and realize, oh, crap. But the way that she does it allows him to save face and doesn't rub it in his face. It's just, it's just unreal. How I could actually, I have like three things I'm going to skip because of how, like, there's just so much courage, humility, and skill that Esther's exercising in this subversive hospitality. It's just amazing. Here's the third point, last point. Subversive hospitality rests in resurrection hope. Now, the words resurrection hope are not in the passage we talked about, but something else is. Check out the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, the very first wor word we read. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. On the third day. Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3, which the author of Esther would have had and been aware of. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Oh, yeah, we read this for the assurance of grace. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This third day, the phrase there hap it occurs 57 times in the Old Testament. Yes, it describes timing, but in the vast majority of those cases, they're also introducing something called a peripety, 
And now you can answer one more question while watching Jeopardy. Um, a peripety is a reversal. It's either a part of the narrative or a narrative in itself that, that shows such a cosmic turning of upside down of destiny. It is a life-to-death reversal of destiny. And this is introducing the peripety of Esther. And in every case where that, where that happens, God is the mediator. He is the one who does it. I don't, I don't care what we're talking about. Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 4. You can look these up if you want. Jacob, Genesis 31. Jonah in chapter 1. Also, Jesus. On the third day, he rose from the dead. All of this is pointing to resurrection hope. Now, let, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm kind of setting you up for this so that you do hear what I'm not saying, so it's not your fault if you do. Resurrection hope is not hoping that your subversive hospitality will work or succeed. I'm not saying that, that Esther was, was resting in resurrection hope that, that everything that she was doing would actually work at all. She didn't know that. She couldn't know that. She's actually, that's, that's a different kind of hope. And again, because I know you love all my Tolkien illustrations, turns out, I learned recently, that, uh, and if you don't know Tolkien, he, is, he was a philologist. He knew 19 dead languages. Um, and like half of them, literally no one else in the, in, in the world was, a, was, a, was an expert on or could, could as well as he, okay? And so he created all of the languages of Middle Earth. And in Elvish, he gave the Elvish language two words for, for hope. Two words for hope. The first is this, Amdir. Um, and this is a direct quote from him. Uh, it's described as an expectation of good, which though uncertain has some foundation in what is known. Okay. In other words, Amdir is an optimism that the good guys are going to win. Amdir is an optimism that things are going to work out. It's, yes, it is, it is it's a hope in the midst of and, and focused on circumstances, but it's actually a hope of circumstantial improvement. Okay. This it's fine, it's a good hope, we should, that's a good thing to hope for, but it's a lesser hope. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous because, and this is the whole narrative that, that of hope that, that revolves around it, it's dangerous because things often don't work out, right? We know this. Sometimes evil wins. Sometimes fathers and mothers outlive their sons and daughters. Sometimes cancer comes back. Sometimes you do the right thing and you lose your job. Hannah and I went to the, the funeral of Ezra Black on Friday night. And um, his mom, Kirsten, who's she and her husband, Vince, are Hannah and I's friends, she started her kind of talking about uh, Ezra saying, is there actually ever like a good time to die? And what hit me over the head on that is just like, like, oh, yeah, no, no, there's not a good, there's not, there, there, maybe there, as she made the point that there, there, are, more, there are more and less tragic times or, or ways to go, but it's, there's not a good time. And that should tell us something about the insufficiency of Amdir hope, right? Because if that's our only 
hope, then we will experience despair as Denethor did, and we, he, who lost himself, who lost his grip on reality because of that despair, or we become complicit as Saruman the White was and sold his soul to evil because it's the only way to live. Those are the two very extreme, equal, opposite trajectories that are the destiny of Ambir al hope alone. There's the other kind of hope, though, and it's Estel. Estel. It's hope, but it's also a transcendent trust. This is a hope that you can have in the face of evil, even if you have lost all Ambir hope of success. This is the hope that Elrond said at the Fellowship of the Ring in the Council, uh, when he says that this evil that is coming, there's not that you can do other than resist with or without hope. Like, all you can do is resist, and whether you resist with hope or you resist without hope, what matters is you resist. Now, it sounds very not hopeless, but that's where Estelle came from, right? Because Tolkien is not just philosophizing this. That hope, that Estelle hope, was forged in the trenches of World War I. If you didn't know, um, Tolkien was actually, he and his three other best friends, the four of them, uh, his four this group of four childhood best friends called themselves the Tea Club and Barovian Society. I have no idea what a Barovian society is or how that's related to a tea club, but that's what they called themselves. And on the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army, the Battle of Somme, where 19,000 soldiers died, two of his three friends did too. Keep that in mind when you hear this, where he writes of Sam's epiphany of Estelle Hope, when he's in Mordor with Frodo at the darkest point of their journey toward Mount Doom. Speaking of Sam's kind of internal monologue, he says, They are peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope, Estelle returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, of, in the, end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This is Tolkien's hope when he writes about how war divided the original Fellowship of the Ring, the Four Hobbits, right? Who were obviously an analogy for his, him and his three childhood best friends who are also divided and split up because of war. But he clearly thus saw death split of his real fellowship with them as similarly temporary and impotent. That's resurrection hope. Only Estelle can say, as Esther did, if I perish, I perish. Only hope in high beauty can outpace evil's advance. Only resurrection hope can take meaningful risk more than manageable risk or have an agenda of generosity more than an agenda of obligation, whether that succeeds or not. <laughs> Let me answer the so what, and then we'll get into the Q&A, right? If the takeaway from this, everything that I've been talking about, if the takeaway of this is, you know, just be more like Esther, 
practice her subversive hospitality in these ways, then we're actually not doing what I just described of resting in resurrection hope. If we're saying be more like Esther, then we're actually missing the point of Esther. Because the moral of the story is not do subversive hospitality like she does and, and all you'll do is win. Or if you suck at life, then it's because you're not practicing subversive hospitality, right? Esther's third day hope is not that God will help her save the day, but that God has already saved the day. It's that she might have a part to play in God's story, and that is relevant to her being able to rest in that hope and to be freed by it, but it is not actually a hope in her success or failure at all. It's not even a question that is asked. Sam Gamgee and Frodo Baggins didn't defeat Sauron. Sauron was defeated by a light and high beauty forever beyond his reach. We have an even greater hope because Jesus defeated death and put us beyond its reach. And we can rest in that reality. It frees us to play our part in God's story as Sam did in Tolkien's without fear of failure or success either. Now, at this point in the sermon, I need to let you know that I have um, I've been both convicted about this and had an opportunity to listen to that conviction. And I kind of, I did, I did, right? What I mean by that is, is uh, and let me give you some context for this because, and if this sounds disjointed, you'll understand why in a second. Um, I take a lot of comfort up here in being prepared. Um, I love a good word, turn of phrase. I mean, come on, guys. We have a greater hope because Jesus defeated death and put us beyond its reach. That's awesome. I take a lot of comfort in like, like, like yes, okay, that'll, that's good. This is the least finished sermon I have preached to you since we regathered a year ago. So unfinished that I don't have a way to end it right now. And that's a meaningful, well, it's risky, for, but it feels risky anyway, and I hope it's a meaningful one. Um, and, and I hope it's a, it is born of an agenda of generosity, but not for you. It's because... This week was nuts, and I was so busy that I thought I was going to have to work on my day off on Saturday. And I thought I was going to have to work on my day off on Saturday because I suck at resting in the resurrection hope of Jesus. And I didn't have to, and so there's, like, not really anything left in my outline on my sermon because I instead I played Legos with my son. And that's risky because some of you might be like, oh, man, that sermon was so disjointed and it was so long and... You know, it could have been the difference between a, you know, 45-minute sermon and a 35-minute sermon, and I got something to do after this. And now he's just rambling with an internal monologue that's a lot less good and eloquent than Sam's. It's kind of freeing, but it's just freeing-ish for me, to be honest, right? I'm trusting that that's true, and also whether you come back every week or you never come back again, that the resurrection hope that I'm trying to practice better and be resting in, that doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter to me. Right? I'm not good at that. I'm still learning to grow and rest in that resurrection hope, whether it works or not. Cheers. So, 
Let's talk about some Q&A because that might be easier than getting out of the hole I just opened myself. Okay. Um, okay, I got a, uh, a question about the pastor search. I'm going to let you, I'll, I'll respond to that afterward for sure. Okay, if Esther was using these feasts to imply to the king that she and Haman were having an affair, how is this lost on Haman himself? Wouldn't he be worried about this implication? You would think. Yes. Um, next week, uh, we're going to talk about pride, which is, if you think it's fun to hear a sermon on pride, it's a lot less fun to preach one. Um, but Haman was so blinded that this, this was subtle compared to the things that he was completely blind to. So you would think, yes, but that's, you're, it's a great question because you're, that's actually part of the point that we're going to talk about next week. So next question, how do we incorporate social justice into our hospitality? It feels like we are often the last to respond to current events slash social issues with generosity and risk for fear of looking too woke by the church. Thanks so much for a great message. Thanks for a great question. How do we incorporate social justice into our hospitality? Um, there's so many ways. It's a huge question, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two, two answers first. One, the only way to do that is if we start by resting in resurrection hope. If we think that social justice will be accomplished or not because of our involvement and not God's, first and foremost, we are kidding ourselves and we are contributing to injustice. Because social justice that is rooted in the gospel is one that is rooted in the freedom of not having to succeed or fail in it first. And it means that when we do pursue it, that it is informed by Sabbath, it is informed by grace and by love, and we are operating off of a biblical paradigm. So that, that is vitally important. The second thing that I would say is that hospitality is social justice. And so there's no, like, like think about how many things that you would consider an act of social justice that has an agenda of generosity and takes meaningful risk. Like I, I would actually say that that might be a good definition of social justice equally as hospitality, okay? Now, we talked about a few weeks ago about how, you know, the way that we see power in the world and the way that the Bible see po sees power in the world is different. And, and that's, man, if there, there are a few things more confusing about, to navigate in the world today than, like, any discussion about power and how that should be structured or organized and who should have it and who shouldn't, like, please go back and listen to one of those sermons, uh, that sermon about power if, 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 if you want to dig in deeper. But the second thing I, I, I will say, the second thing I have said and want to just like hammer home is like social justice that is not hospitable is not social justice either. So I'd actually answer your question by turning it upside down and say like if we focus more on hospitality and what that means, I think, I think it, one, it would be maybe less confusing, but who cares whether it's confusing or not? Like let's be faithful and skip what people think about us. That's the thing. Okay. Um, last question. It seems like having an evangelical agenda in relationships can often get in the way of deep, mutually respectful relationships. Frankly, ceasing to worry about evangelizing has allowed me to form far better relationships outside of the church. 
how do we balance these things, having hope and an agenda in relationship without sacrificing mutuality? Okay, so um, I'm not sure if this person means uh, evangelical agenda or evangelistic agenda. This could be very two very different things um, with some overlap, of course. But there's a difference between hoping that God changes someone else's hearts and minds about who he is and gives them a new heart and, and feeling the need to change people's minds about God and how he sees them. We are freed to be more generous by, by in the belief that that's actually God's job to do the conviction piece. And if anyone repents and accepts Jesus into their heart or however you want to describe it, like whatever language you use, if somebody does that, that's actually, you didn't do that. That was God. And it might have been despite you. I mean, that's how I became a Christian, despite Christian. So I'm sympathetic to this question. That's like God's bigger than your intent. Okay, that's, that's one thing. Like you, you have to be freed by that. And if you still feel that pressure, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction, okay? Being convicted about this is, 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 is a motivation of grace, and the other one is, is, is guilt. That, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is if you truly love someone, you should want them to love and know Jesus because, because Jesus is awesome. It's just great. And knowing him is, is incredible. And why would we not want that for anybody, everybody, okay? Now, how you do that, you just, like, what, what I did with Mariah when, when I was talking to her in the, in the moment and many conversations after that point, I, I, one of the things I kept saying to her is just like, like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put a Jesus gun to your head, right? And she's like, no, I know that. I've never felt that way. I'm like, okay, good. But please tell me if you don't, if you ever do feel that way, because I, that means I have stopped believing that that's God's job and I think it's mine, okay? We have a role to play in God's story. We should be responsible and faithful to that role as much as we can. That does, but that's a, abandoning that is not the answer either. Um, so let me, I'll pause there. I feel like I'm, if you, by the way, whoever asked that question, if you want to talk more about that, if you're wrestling with something specific, like, man, let me help you. Let, let, let's talk about it. And, and we'll, like, if you have a specific friendship or relationship that you're wrestling with in that, or you got some wounds around, Christians with good intentions behaving badly uh, would love to talk more about that. So um, all that said, as we transition to communion, I want to read um, <laughs> one of the, the most beautiful expressions of what it means to take up Jesus' invitation to, re to rest in resurrection hope, right? Eugene Peterson wrote a, a paraphrase of, the, of an English Bible translation. It's not a translation itself. It's called The Message. And so it's just like a, trying to get to the heart of a passage, right? And he translates or, or paraphrases Matthew 11, where Jesus says, you know, come all you who are wearied, I'll give you rest. And I love the way he articulates this. He says, are you tired? This is Jesus. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? And I would add, trying to leverage resurrection, hope instead of rest in it. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and rightly. What this is getting at is the reality that we, and this, this is a celebration. Like, we celebrate. We don't just remember. The remembering is the celebrating. This gets at the beauty that is, whereas Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, extended his golden scepter to Esther so that she could enter into his presence without dying, Jesus extends a cross so that we can be present with him always and live always. There is the, the cross. You know, we're talking about just social justice. The cross, yes, is an act of God's justice and mercy coming together in a cruciform shape. It is also an act of radical, subversive hospitality. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It is broken for you. This is your invitation. It's so you know that I am safe. No, actually, that's not right. He's, Jesus is not safe. He's good, right? If I quote a token, I got to quote Aslan. Okay. In your brokenness, in your unpreparedness, in your lack of resting on my resurrection hope, I died for that too. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, he said, this blood, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, it is given for the remission of sins. Before you think about binding yourself to me or to one another, I have bound myself to you, and in so doing, have caught you up in the peripety of all peripeties, the reversal that is the upside-down transformation of death to life. And that promise is sealed in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim my goodness until I return. You proclaim my hospitality until I return. You embody my hospitality until I return. And you are loved even when you don't up until and through and after I return. That is really good news. So if that is a hope you want, whether again, still, or the first time, come and eat. This is for you. It's his table. He set it for you in the midst of whatever it is you're dealing with. Will you pray?